Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. This is the fourth flyover episode, which means it originates from the upper Midwest. So far, I've covered the case of Jamie Kloss in Wisconsin, Amy Mullis in Iowa, and Drew Sedin in North Dakota. So this episode is going to take us to South Dakota, home of the beautiful Black Hills and Mount Rushmore. But before we get into this episode, let's get the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crimes Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you would like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. It helps build our listenership. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Gold fever is the term given to someone who loses sense of reality in the pursuit of fortune. In the 1800s, many people gave their lives in pursuit of gold rushes on four different continents. While the Black Hills Gold Rush of 1874 was not nearly as large as the California Gold Rush of 1849 or the Klondike Gold Rush at the turn of the century, it did bring a lot of people to the Black Hills area of South Dakota. The Black Hills had been a sacred area for the Lakota peoples of western South Dakota. Their way of life and reverence for nature was captured in the 1990 film Dances with Wolves. That film, like the Gold Rush, brought a lot of people to see what was once considered the last frontier in the lower part of America. The Gold Rush, however, had a negative effect on the Lakota people. Gold found on their land meant the U.S. government would ignore yet another treaty and drive them from this sacred land to less valuable land. Towns sprung up overnight and an estimated 25,000 people flooded into the Black Hills to find the source of gold and get rich quick. One of those towns was Spearfish, South Dakota. Located on the extreme northern edge of the Black Hills, the town of just 170 at the start of the gold rush quickly grew to over 1,000 within 20 years. The town currently has 12,000 people living in it and is known for for its extreme climate changes. It holds the world record for the fastest temperature change. On January 22, 1943, around 7.30 a.m., the air temperature was negative 4 Fahrenheit and negative 20 Celsius, and a Chinook wind, a pocket of warm air, pushed down the mountains outside the town. This air warmed up the town to plus 45 Fahrenheit, or 12 degrees Celsius, in the matter of two minutes. The 49 degree Fahrenheit, or 27 degrees Celsius, change is the fastest rise in temperature recorded during a two-minute period. 27 minutes later, the temperature plummeted back to negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit, causing glass windows throughout the town to crack. But on the evening of March 12, 2000, it would not be the weather that brought attention to the town, but the senseless murder of a teenage boy. Greed had once again reared its ugly head in the Black Hills, and this time it was going to cost several people their lives. For many teenagers in the upper Midwest, a cold March night can be more than enough reason to sit inside and play video games with your friends. In 2023, that likely means everyone is sitting in their own house playing games online and talking to their friends while wearing oversized headsets and talking way too loud. But in 2000, it was more common that that it meant everyone would get together in one location and play split screen or take turns trying to win whatever the game or games of choice were that evening. 
on March 12, 2000, Chester Poge had invited three of his friends over to play video games while his mother and sister were on vacation in Florida. Chester was 19 years old, had the house to himself, and didn't appear to have any commitments in the coming days. Chester had navigated a few struggles in his life. He grew up on a Kansas farm, but at the age of 14, his family moved to Rapid City, South Dakota. His father was severely asthmatic, and the move to South Dakota was for health reasons. His parents' marriage had been troubled for 10 years at this point, and every time his mother told his father that she wanted to leave, Chester's father would threaten to kill himself. Two years later, his mother filed for divorce, and within a few days, his father killed himself. Chester, his sister, and his mom moved back to Kansas to be close to their family. He found high school difficult as other kids would bully him and his sister about their father's suicide. Chester graduated high school in Kansas and started attending college nearby. The bullying got worse for his sister, so his mother and sister moved to Spearfish, South Dakota. The smaller high school and people's lack of knowledge of the suicide afforded her a chance to get through high school with much less bullying. Chester had just finished an internship in Denver and couldn't start school again until fall of 2000, so for the spring and summer of 2000, he had planned to live with his mother and sister before moving back to finish up school. Having gotten in trouble with drugs the year prior, Chester had to submit to monthly drug tests and had been clean for a year, but due to his probation status, he wasn't supposed to leave the state without permission from his probation officer, so he was somewhat forced to stay home while his family went to Florida. I'll take a break from the story here just to expand. This case doesn't have a ton of information out there about it. It's got enough that I was able to do a full episode, but there's are some discrepancies. Uh, the one said that Chester had finished this internship in Denver and was just waiting to start school again until the fall of 2000. Another site said that he had gotten in trouble with drugs back in Kansas for possessing and selling marijuana and that's why he was on probation and the probation forced him to return home and kind of wait out until his probation was done before he could do school in another state again so there's some conflicting reports there but most of the other stuff lined up in terms of the family having to move a couple times his father committing suicide and where he is at this point in his life and the fact that he was home alone during that time period while I'm guessing his sister was on spring break um, with his mother down in Florida. That evening he invited three friends to his house, 20-year-old Briley Piper, 20-year-old Daryl Holdley, and 18-year-old Elijah Page. They all played video games, but what Chester didn't know was that his quote-unquote friends had other plans that evening. And when I say friends, apparently he didn't know these guys very well. He hadn't been back in town. I think he moved back. It was like Christmas Eve, I think one of the sites said, that he had just, just gotten back into town, and these were not friends of his because he did not go to high school here. He went finished up his high school down in, in Kansas, and before that he was in Rapid City, South Dakota, not up in Spearfish here. So this is a brand-new area for him. And so I don't know how he met these guys all it would say is that they were you know, friends of his or acquaintances of his. And later on, it would just say that he didn't know these guys very well, but that at least he knew them well enough to have invited them over to play video games. According to Paige, the plan was to invite Chester to Paige's house, where then he would be distracted by Paige 
while the other two drove back to Chester's and burglarized the home. They already knew that with Chester out of the house and his mom and sister in Florida, they could take whatever they wanted and use the cash to buy more drugs. But while at Chester's house, Paige found a 22 caliber pistol and decided to enact a new plan. Chester was still invited to Paige's house and the three of them traveled there in Chester's vehicle. Once they walked into Paige's house, he pulled a gun on Chester and ordered him to the ground. Piper then kicked Chester so hard in the head that Chester lost consciousness. While he was unconscious, the men tied Chester to a chair, and when he regained consciousness, the men asked Chester for his ATM pin, and they, were, and they told him they were going to rob him. Chester pleaded for his life as the men debated killing him there by cutting his throat, but determined it would be too messy. Instead, they made him drink a beer laced with pills and hydrochloric acid, but the mixture didn't kill him, so the suspects forced him out into his vehicle and drove him to a remote location seven miles away called Higgins Gulch. There, they made him strip down to almost nothing in the 25-degree weather and walk through a foot of snow on the way to an icy creek. Along the way, they beat Chester, and once they got him to the creek, they stabbed him several times. Chester pleaded with the suspects to let him die in his vehicle where it was warm, and they initially agreed, but told Chester he had to wash the blood off first. Chester washed the blood off and started to crawl out of the creek when the suspects changed their mind and savagely started beating Chester again in the creek. At one point, Chester was able to escape, but was tracked down by Paige and brought back to the creek, where they continued to beat him. Paige stated he kicked Chester so many times that his foot got sore and ultimately large rocks were dropped on Chester's head, which ended his life. The entire ordeal had lasted roughly three hours, and after killing Chester, the suspects drove to his house and took anything of value and fled the area. They drove to Piper's sister's house in Missouri, but she refused to let them stay there, so they drove back to Rapid City, South Dakota, using ATMs to withdraw money and pawning some of the items stolen from the house. Once back in South Dakota, the suspects went their separate ways. Piper decided to return to his home state of Alaska, and Paige fled to Texas. Hordley stayed in the Spearfish area. Meanwhile, Chester's mother was growing worried that she couldn't reach her son via phone from Florida. She called a neighbor to go check on Chester, and the neighbor reported Chester wasn't home, his vehicle was gone, and several items were missing from the home. I'm sure her first worry was more along the lines of Chester getting involved in drugs again and running off with items of value and his vehicle. So when she returned home on March 16th, she filed a theft report with the Spearfish Police Department stating she believed her son Chester stole several thousand dollars worth of items from the home and then fled. Police would actually issue an arrest warrant for Chester on March 27th, more than two weeks after his murder. On April 22nd, a woman found Chester's remains in the creek in Higgins Gulch. He was positively identified, and his cause of death was a combination of stabbing and blunt force trauma. On April 25th, investigators interviewed Hordley. Now, this is likely because it's a small town and they were known acquaintances, and Hordley admitted his involvement in the murder and implicated Page and Piper. Warrants were issued for Page and Piper and they were both arrested on April 28th. Page was located in Texas, where he had been hiding since the murder, and Piper was found in Alaska. While still in Texas and Alaska, both Page and Piper spoke to investigators and confessed to the murder, detailing the horrible nature of the crime. Piper, however, downplayed his involvement, claiming 
that he went back to Chester's vehicle during the stabbings and when the rocks were dropped. He did admit to stabbing Chester a couple times initially and then standing on his neck when they tried to drown him. Both Piper and Paige were then extradited back to South Dakota. So who are these monsters? Elijah Page was born on December 1st, 1981 in Florida. His childhood was rough, having been born to a homeless family. There were reports of regular molestation as a child, as he was given to men as a form of payment for drugs. This started as early as the age of two. He also spent part of his childhood living in abandoned buildings without running water or utilities. There was even a report that his stepfather used him as a human shield during a shootout with police. But at the time of the murder, he was an adult, and he was, by all accounts, the muscle of the operation. He was the one who stole the gun, and according to the statements, he was the one that ran Chester down when he tried to escape, and was the first to strike him, stab him, and hit him with a rock. Briley Piper was born on March 20, 1980, in Alaska. He grew up in Anchorage, and by the age of 13, he had already been arrested for sexually assaulting a woman and also robbing a classmate at knife point. He was considered the ringleader of the group due to his ability to manipulate other people into doing what he wanted them to do. Daryl Hordley was born on November 5, 1979 in Wyoming. He was also known to be abused as a child by both his mother and his mother's many boyfriends. He had a one-year-old daughter at the time of the murder. So before we get into the, the pleas and the trials, I just kind of want to break down what we've discussed so far in this case. There's kind of a lot to digest. And so the best part to probably start is, by all accounts, Chester seemed to be this nice kid. He made some bad decisions, but again, he didn't have the, the greatest life growing up. Definitely seemed like he tried to fit in in school and that was difficult for him. He started kind of as a smaller kid and then he grew up to be six foot one but was pretty skinny. He did play some sports but it sounds like he was really interested in electronics and that's what he was going to school for. I couldn't find much about what I mentioned earlier with the, the his arrest for the possession or sale of marijuana but it didn't also talk about him doing a lot of jail time or anything, so it must have been his first offense, and he must have just been put on probation and was just following the rules for it. These other guys, on the other hand, I guess they were pretty heavily involved in the drug scene around Spearfish, South Dakota. I think a couple of them had just recently been arrested for driving to Oregon or Washington State to purchase stuff to make LSD or something along those lines. So they were much more in into the kind of the, the criminal crowd of Spearfoot fish. And so again, I don't know how Chester met these guys. I mean, they're roughly the same age, so it could just be as simple as, and again, I don't know, I didn't see anything about Chester having a part-time job, but it could be as simple as Chester worked with one of these guys and befriended one of them. And then as a result of befriending one, he. You know these other these three guys hang together, so now he's quote unquote friends with all three of them. But there would be later a letter that Paige sends from prison, and Paige is taking a lot of 
the blame for the incident and and Paige would say that their initial plan was just he was going to distract Chester. He's going basically they're going to all go over to Paige's house. Paige was going to kind of keep Chester distracted again. I don't know if that's video games, watch a movie, whatever it may be, and the other two were going to drive to Chester's place again knowing that it, nobody's there. The sister and and mother are in Florida. Chester's occupied, so I don't know how they thought they'd get away with it and Chester wouldn't be a witness, but I guess at some point that became a concern for Paige that Chester would rat them out. So then it was just going to be that they were just going to rough up Chester and somehow it went from that to killing him. And Paige would say this was his idea and it wasn't, and Piper had nothing to do with it, but they threatened Piper saying they would kill him and then he would do stuff to his sister and apparently Piper was very protective of his family and so this got Piper to go along with the plan however that's contradicted by a lot of people saying that Piper was the ringleader of this group and he's the one that made all the decisions so they think Paige was just jumping on a grenade for his buddy when he did when he admitted this stuff so it's it's hard because there's not a lot of dynamics. It's clear that these guys grew up in pretty rough situations, and it makes me think of the Matthew Shepard case. I mean, we're kind of talking roughly the same area, this, this western South Dakota, southern Wyoming, uh, roughly the area. And I think uh, Hordley, I think it was, was from Laramie, Wyoming. And so... And we're talking about abuse, just like the Matthew Shepard case. Both those guys were deemed to have been abused potentially sexually by mothers, boyfriends, and and different stuff as they're growing up. So a lot of parallels between the suspects in the Matthew Shepard case and the suspect in Chester's case. There's also drugs involved in both cases and trying to steal money to buy more drugs. So the main difference here is that Chester wasn't gay and Matthew Shepard was and that's why Matthew Shepard's case got a lot of attention for for reasons that it should have I'm just saying that it, the parallels stop and the fact that there are enough differences that it's it's not the same case I'm just saying that the suspects have very similar backgrounds and you've got a very similar victim in this case um, it was said that Matthew Shepard was involved in some drugs, made some decisions, bullied a lot, and, and that's kind of, the, again, the same victim here. It's just, as far as we know, Chester was heterosexual, and there was no plan to harm him because of his sexual orientation. But getting back to the case, what really struck people about this case was not the fact that Chester was murdered for for money, because that just seems to happen quite a bit it's it's the again the nature of the homicide that that made this capture headlines when people finally figured out what happened it was the 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 making him drink the acid and beer and and pills and then the and the brutal nature of the attacks that actually killed him in that creek just just everything about it was it was torture it wasn't killing i mean eventually they did kill him but 
if they wanted to kill him, they could just kill him right away, and they tortured him for for a few hours before he died, and he had to have been in a lot of pain. He had to have known that he was likely going to die or knew he was dying. So, again, it was more the depravity of the entire situation than it was the fact that these guys killed him to, to get access to money and items to sell for money for drugs. And then you've got the whole dynamic of Chester's mother coming home from Florida and her initial assumption is that Chester with his history of drugs has gotten back into drugs and decided that he was going to you know take the opportunity while she was down in Florida with her sister to clean out the house of anything valuable and and flee the area because his his truck's missing this is not like one of these missing persons cases where the wallet's there and the vehicle's there it's not the you know the Watts family deal where the the minivan's there and so now you question why would this person leave without their stuff all all of Chester's stuff is gone and Chester's gone and his vehicle's gone so the assumption at that point was that he ran off to go make more poor life choices when in reality unfortunately he was already deceased at this point and it went to the, the point that you know, the mother files this police report and they realize if somebody does come across Chester, and likely this is the case of the probation officer issuing the arrest warrant for the theft. Uh, a lot of the times probation officers, you know, they, their their job is to make sure that, that their clients continue to be law-abiding so that they can stay on probation. Well, he's or she is going to catch word that their client has not only stolen items from the family and taken off he's likely violated probation in other ways as well so they're likely going to be the ones to actually push to have this arrest warrant issued so that if somebody comes across chester he can be arrested brought back then he'll face a judge for the probation violations and for this theft but again unbeknownst to them you know, this was not Chester's doing, and Chester's actually deceased. So it's going to be about a month after that arrest warrant is issued that they're going to find uh, Chester's remains and kind of put it together that something terrible happened to Chester. And again, there was nothing in the research to indicate why police went to interview Hordley three days after the body was found. Again, this is a town of 12,000 people, so I assume everybody kind of knows everybody. There was a mention that the neighbor that went to check on the house had seen Chester with a couple guys on the night of March 12th. So maybe the neighbor recognized Hordley and told the police, like, hey, he was hanging out with this guy. I'd go talk to him and see if he knows what happened to, to Chester. So... Again, there's a lot of reading between the lines in all these different reports, but that's the best I can think of is that police just went on the whim to go over and talk to Hordley, and ultimately they get this full confession that, yes, this is what myself, Paige, and Piper did to uh, Chester on that, on that evening. And then we talked a little bit about who these guys are. Uh, again, about their past kind of lining up with other pasts we've seen of guys with extremely violent behavior and with drugs involved as well. So we'll get down to the trials now. Paige and Piper would both plead guilty and go before a judge to determine their sentence. They felt they had a better chance of getting a lesser sentence from a judge because the emotional outcry that followed after the details of the murder were released was 
was really high. So I think they thought if they went before a jury to decide their sentencing, that the jury would be more likely to go off emotion and the judge would be more likely to go off of, you know, the letter of the law. And I'm guessing they were hoping for life without parole, but the judge instead sentenced both of them to death. And the judge would do this noting that capital murder in South Dakota only requires one aggravating factor uh, above and beyond the death, and Chester's murder had four. And those factors were death with torture, death with mutilating the person while still alive, death with killing for money, and killing to silence a witness. So all four of those boxes are checked. So the judge is looking at it saying, if any one of these existed, I could sentence them to death. But in fact, all four exist in just this case alone. So the judge felt compelled to issue a death sentence to Page and Piper. Page initially appealed the death sentence, but in 2006, he changed his mind and requested that he be put to death. The state was required to grant his request, but a mix-up with the law of how many drugs were to be used delayed the execution until 2007. And on July 11th of 2007, at 10 p.m., Elijah Page became the first person executed in South Dakota since 1947, and he offered no last words before he died. And the reason for the 60-year gap is South Dakota is one of those states that actually removed the death sentence as an option for several years, but then it was reinstated. But even after it was reinstated, it was not used again uh, very often. In fact, at one point, it was just Page and Piper and one other guy on death row. And since then, Page was executed in 2007. The other guy was executed, I want to say it was like 2013. And then Piper is now the last remaining person on death row. And Piper continues to appeal his death sentence. In 2009, he won one of his appeals when it was decided that a judge alone could not sentence someone to death. It required a jury. This was actually a Supreme, a U.S. Supreme Court decision. So in 2011, a jury was convened to hear their particulars of the case, and they weren't there to determine his guilt. That was already predetermined. It was. They were just there to determine if death was an appropriate sentence. And the jury found death to be the appropriate sentence and Piper was put back onto death row. He immediately appealed the sentence on the grounds the jury was biased, but the sentence was upheld in 2019. He continues to, to appeal the death sentence at every turn and is currently appealing on the grounds his initial lawyer didn't do enough mental acuity testing. And he claims he suffers from fetal alcohol syndrome but the prosecution contends that Piper holds a college degree and does not seem to suffer from any mental deficiency, at least to the level that he didn't understand his legal processes. So, uh, and as I mentioned, Piper's the only person currently sitting on South Dakota's death row. Hordley was the only suspect to plead not guilty and request a jury trial. He was found guilty of first degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, first degree robbery, first degree burglary, and grand theft. However, the jury deadlocked at 8-4 to four when it came to sentencing him to death, with 8 voting for life in prison and 4 for the death penalty. And a death penalty requires a unanimous jury vote. So as a result, Hordley was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The case continues to divide people because of the death penalty ramifications. 
those against the death penalty liken Page's request to die as state-assisted suicide, and on the other side of the coin, proponents of the death penalty point to Piper's endless appeals as to how the death penalty system is broken. In the end, no one wins when something like this happens. The victim dies, his family misses him and mourns his loss, and three other lives are destroyed by their own hand, and countless others battle over the term justice. So before we end, I know this was kind of a, a quicker episode. That kind of happens when there's one crime, one victim. I should say there's multiple crimes, but one victim and all kind of lumped into the same event. And they all confess. There's not a whole lot of investigation. It's not as much of a whodunit, although it does get a little bit that way when you start talking about Piper saying that he was back at the the vehicle when Chester was actually killed. He was trying to distance himself, but also he was the one that everybody said was the ringleader and the manipulator. So if there was anybody that was going to try to wiggle out of some of the blame for the actual murder, it was probably going to be Piper. And again, that's where Paige's Paige actually sent that letter from prison stating that it was all him and Piper didn't want to do it and he threatened Piper and made him do it. It was in the same letter that he sent that as the letter where he requested to be put to death and that he was going to not appeal anything anymore. So some people think that that was Paige trying to get his buddy off of his death sentence by taking full blame and that people really didn't believe that that's how it went down uh, because that's not how Hordley described it going down it wasn't how I don't think Paige described it initially I think a lot of people were pointing to that after the fact and again the, the big part of this case is the death penalty itself and this is where I'm not going to get on the, the political soapbox and tell you how I think you should feel about the death penalty. That's Each person has their own idea of whether or not death penalty is justice or whether it's an injustice to the person that's, that's, that's put on death row. Again, it's you have to make your own decision, but when the death penalty gets brought up, and, and I brought it up a lot in the past where it's been used as that device that gets people to plea, and this is what was interesting was that these two guys plead to it, not even taking it to trial, and they still get the death penalty. Usually it's the opposite way where if they go to trial, that's where they're going to risk the death penalty. And if they lose in the trial, they're likely going to face the death penalty. Whereas in this case, it's the two guys that pled, and they must have pled without a deal in place other than that there wasn't going to be a jury trial or jury sentencing, I should say. And they get sentenced to death, and the guy that fights it, he pleads not guilty and goes through a trial, is the one that gets life in in prison. So I think that has some people upset about this case as well because it was kind of the guys that were willing to admit guilt and take their punishment, get the death penalty, and the guy that tried to fight it, he somewhat, I guess, wins in a way because he's not on death row. I understand the legal aspects of why the judge decided what he decided. I mean, again, it comes down to the crime itself. If they just shot him in the head with the twenty-two caliber revolver when they first got him to Page's house, 
I mean, you can still argue the aggravating factor that it was done for money, and, and I've talked about it before. So many of the cases, whether it be Harold Henthorne or any of these, they're killing for money. That's that's why that's their motive. A lot of murders do, so a lot of murders could face the death penalty if that's your one aggravating factor in your state where the where the death penalty uh, is allowed. So yes, I guess they could have still looked at it that way, but I, I guarantee if that's what had happened, then these guys would all be sitting in life or with life in prison without the possibility of parole. But it's the torture and the mutilation and the fact that they did this crime just so they could do another crime, which was burglarize the house, which that's the other thing is burglar was a very common crime that I investigated both as a police officer and a crime scene technician and while i can't say it's a victimless crime because obviously there's a victim and they are out the the items in their home and they they lose a sense of security that somebody's been in their home has been through their stuff and and so i get that you can't look at it that way but if you look at the propensity for violence and the danger on somebody the the burglary of an empty home, especially a home that's known to be empty, you know, pales in comparison to what these guys did to Chester. So if their end goal was just to get some money to buy some drugs, they could have stuck with their original plan. And I'm sure Chester just wanting to have friends likely would have just hung out at the house with Paige. And then this would have been a non-story and yeah, some stuff would be missing and there would be some theft and burglary reports taken and eventually stuff would probably get figured out as to who took what and and Chester might get himself in some trouble with his mom because he befriended these guys that ended up burglarizing their home. But the, the, the long story short is Chester didn't have to die in order for them to do their couple day joyride or whatever it was that they did with his car and with all their stuff. And had that just been the crime, obviously we wouldn't be sitting here talking about the case. But to me, again, it's just no amount of value is worth somebody's life and no amount of value is worth somebody's life plus all this torture and all that kind of stuff. So for me, I look at it and I don't see any issue with, with how it all shook out. And I wasn't there in the trial with Hordley's case to see. I think the jury did find some mitigating factors and the fact that Hordley had this rough life growing up where he was abused and maybe Paige and Piper would have had similar uh, sympathetic juries that might have heard about some of their abuse or their mental health issues and may have not voted in favor of the death penalty but because they chose to just roll the dice and go with the judge they kind of got what they got and then you know piper gets a second chance again it's not a full retrial he doesn't get to go through the evidence get all gets all presented again and that kind of stuff and he did have defense counsel that was helping select the jury and i know i read one of his appeals where he was upset that some of the jurors basically said that they are going to find him guilty before they even hear any evidence in the case which isn't fair to him but at the same time his defense attorney should have been fighting for that and if that's 
really what happened. The courts, the appeals courts would look at something like that. If the judge failed to recognize that, he should be getting a, a retrial or a resentence or whatever. So I always question because it's usually the the prisoners lawyers the defense lawyers are coming out and saying some of this stuff and i always question how much of that is actually true or accurate when it comes to this stuff because these appeals are going before some pretty experienced and intelligent judges that know the law and they're reading it and seeing everything that happened and making decisions and so far other than as one appeal that was basically had to be overturned because there was no question about it uh, he's lost every other appeal so anyway that is going to be the case of chester and that's my case out of south dakota so i think my next case will be minnesota again because that's the uh coming full circle back around uh which will be case number 45 so i already have a couple cases in mind being that i live in this state i know some of the, the cases I want to cover, uh, but I will uh, start doing uh, normal cases again tomorrow. Uh, i got a couple good ones to cover, so thanks for listening, and stay tuned for those future episodes. Feel free to write me at productions at gmail.com. You can also find me at Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at Productions. And if you're still sticking around here, I just want to thank everybody for the, I just hit 2,500 followers on Facebook and I give updates and links to where you can listen to the episodes each time I make it live. Hopefully I'll have the website up and running or it will be up and running by the time you hear this. And other than that, like I said, thanks everybody for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.